We'll take your Bibles again this morning, the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 16. And the classes can go out with Cindy, please. Acts 16, I'm going to read this morning from, chap- from verse 6 all the way down to verse 40, so a good long read. Acts 16, beginning of verse 6, the word of God says that they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they were trying to get into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A certain man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Therefore, porting out from sea to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the following day came to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in the city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we, so we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a certain slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. And the crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into the prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chain was unfastened. And when the jailer had been roused, sorry, verse 27, and when the jailer had been roused out of sleep and had seen the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, 
supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, trembling with fear, and fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that, that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Now when day came, the chief magistrate sent their policemen saying, Release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the chief magistrates have sent to release you. Now, therefore, come out and go in peace. And Paul said to them, They have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now they are sending us away secretly? No, indeed. But let them come themselves and bring us out. And the policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. And they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. I trust that God will add blessing to the reading of his precious word. So what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news of God's grace for our salvation through faith in Christ alone. It's also the exercise of God's authority and power to remove the wrath of God against us through Jesus' suffering and death and resurrection. It's God's power and authority to defeat the devil, to defeat power and pollution of sin, and to call a defiant, rebellious humanity into submission, obedience and faith in God, and continual repentance of sin. Why has God done all of that. Why did he do it? Two reasons I would give you. Number one, first of all, to glorify the name of Jesus Christ before all nations. And secondly, so that we, being made alive, will have eternal life. The eternal life that Jesus mentioned in his prayer when he said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. That's John 17, verse 3. But again, the gospel is a demonstration of God's authority. You remember when Jesus gathered his disciples in Matthew 28 and verses 18 and 20, his first statement when he was commissioning his disciples to go out and preach the gospel was this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me as to Christ. He was declaring the fulfillment of Daniel's words in Daniel 7:14, which says that to him, that's the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Dominion, it just means sovereignty through legal authority, meaning that Jesus Christ is Lord in authority over all creation, and the gospel is a declaration of Christ's authority. 
The story of the evangelization of Philippi, this first city in Europe that was reached with the gospel, displays his authority in four key areas. First, we see God's authority over his servants and ministries, Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke. Secondly, we can see God's authority over spiritual darkness. Thirdly, we see God's authority over all human government. And fourthly, we see God's authority over his church. His church or people from different races and languages and cultures united together into one body. Distinctions that once separated us, skin color and race and language and social setting, all these earthly distinctions are overcome by the authority of God and the power of the gospel to unite us all under one head who is Jesus Christ, our Lord. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ. Blood brothers and sisters. We look a little different and and some of us sound a little different than the rest. Some more different than others. Some have that crazy Canadian accent. Some have something else. But you know what? We are all brothers and sisters in Christ. And the power of the gospel is to bring us together from all corners of the globe and unite us together into one body in Christ. I have a closer relationship with all of you who know and love the Lord Jesus than many of my own family members who don't know and love the Lord Jesus because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. So then what must our response be to God's authority, which is proclaimed in the presentation of the gospel message? Our response must be to submit to God's authority, to obey God's word, which includes believe the gospel, repent of sin, and live by faith in him. To refuse to submit to God's authority will result in God's judgment and condemnation to hell for all eternity. Or we can submit and know God's grace and mercy and love and peace. So let's consider what our text says about these four aspects of God's authority and their implications for our lives. Notice, first of all, from the text, God has authority over his servants. We've looked at this a couple of times over the course of Acts 16, so we'll just consider this briefly. In Acts 16, verse 6, the Holy Spirit forbade them to go into Asia. God's authority over his servants preventing travel. In verse 7, the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them to go to Bithynia. Again, God's authority over his servants. In verse 9, God calls them through Paul's vision to go into Macedonia. And again, we see God's authority over his servants for their ministry. Here's the point. We who are called by God to be his people and his servants are under his authority. We're not free to pick and choose which of his commands that we will obey. We go where he sends us. We speak what he commands us. We refrain from what he forbids, and we do what he's commanded. But not as beaten, miserable slaves or servants, but rather as sons and daughters of the king, joyfully portraying God's family image of joyful, faithful, loving submission to God. Listen, in our submission obedience there is the experience of the greatest joy in God, as Paul describes it, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. You read the Second Corinthians in particular, read the story of Acts, and you just see the suffering that he goes through time and time again, and yet he's sorrowful, yet 
always rejoicing because he is living in obedience to God. Part why Paul and Silas can pray and sing hymns in the worst of circumstances, beaten, imprisoned, and in the stocks. My brother and my sister, what is God calling you to do? Is it to believe in him? Then by faith, submit to his authority and believe. Is it to be baptized? Then by faith, submit to his authority and submit to baptism. Is it to commit yourself to being a part of a local church? Then by faith, submit to God and get busy in his church. This one or another one, wherever God would have you to be, seek God's mind as to where it is and be there. Get busy. Is it to break off a certain harmful relationship that's displeasing to God? Then by faith, submit to him and break it off. Is it to break a certain destructive habit that you've been engaging in for some time? Then by faith, seek his help and submit to him and break it off. Each of us in our own hearts, our own minds, know what that thing may be that God is calling us to do. My brother and my sister, listen. Obedience and submission to God's authority by faith is not an option. Disobedience will only bring God's discipline and God's judgment. But the obedience of faith brings God's grace and mercy and love and peace. Notice, secondly, that God has authority over all the spiritual forces. We looked at this a couple weeks ago, but I want to review it again. In Acts 16, verses 17 and 18, you can see the demon girl that she's following after Paul. And she keeps crying out those things. These men are bond servants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she continued, continued doing this for many days. And Paul was greatly vexed. And she turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. There is authority over the spiritual forces of darkness. Remember this, that Satan and his demons are intent on one purpose, to destroy the works of God, destroy every work of God. Satan began in Genesis 3, verses 1 to 6, tempting Adam and Eve to sin. He continued throughout the Old Testament, trying to prevent the birth of the Messiah. Satan attempted to kill Jesus at his birth through Herod. He continued in vain, trying to tempt Jesus to sin in Matthew 4, 1 to 11. But it's impossible as Jesus is truly God, unchangeable. All these are an effort to destroy the work of God. The devil tries every tactic imaginable to keep unbelieving eyes blinded so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4. But notice... Paul's words, in the name of Jesus Christ, those words carry the meaning of in the authority of Christ. Paul commands the spirit out in the authority of Jesus' name. And God in Christ Jesus has still all authority over all spiritual forces of darkness. In Genesis 3.14, at the end of that temptation, the fall of man, Eve was promised that her descendant, who is Jesus, would crush the head of the serpent, who is Satan. In Jesus' life and ministry, he had authority over the demons. In Luke 4, 32 and 35, 4, 32 to 35, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. 
And they're all amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. And in verse 35, Jesus rebukes him and says, be quiet, come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing any harm. Jesus Christ has authority over demons and the spiritual forces of darkness. The Bible tells us in 1 John 3, verse 8, describes Jesus coming and appearing for this very purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Christ has defeated the devil through his suffering on the cross. In Colossians 1, verses 12 and 13, Paul gives thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. As the gospel spread in Acts, demonic forces were driven out. In Acts 8 and verse 7, when Philip preached the gospel, demons were driven out. In Acts 26 and verse 18, Paul is describing his commission as preaching the gospel to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. Listen, beloved, God has all authority over the domain of Satan and demons. Christ decisively defeated the devil and the demons on the cross. The authority of Christ's name drove out the slave's demon. The preaching of the gospel is the means by which God shines his light of the knowledge of his glory in the face of Christ into human hearts to set them free. And all truly born again Christians need never to fear the devil. And while they're surely defeated, the demon and devil, sorry, the devil and the demons are still exercising a strong influence deceiving the nations. In the millennial reign, he will be sealed into the abyss and unable to escape and therefore unable to deceive the nations. But right now, he's still doing that because the Bible says so. In 1 Peter 5 verse 8, what does Peter say? Be of sober spirit, be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But... The good news for us is because of God's authority over all spiritual forces, we fear no evil and we trust in God and we obey his command to clothe ourselves in the spiritual armor of God. In Ephesians 6 and verses 10 to 20, we're wrapping ourselves in truth. We're safe inside that breastplate of righteousness. We stand immovable in the assurance of the gospel of peace. We hold fast to the shield of faith with the helmet of salvation jammed down over our head, protecting the head and the mind and the sword of the spirit, which is in Greek, it's the rhema of God's word. The spoken word of God is firmly in hand. And we stand firm against the devil's devices and deception and influences. God has all authority, so we trust in him and we submit to his word. The devil is defeated. Notice thirdly, God has authority over the human governments. We see in verses 35 to 30. Let's read that passage again. Verse 35, it says, Now when day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen, saying, Release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The chief magistrates have sent to release you. Now, therefore, come out and go in peace. 
But Paul said to them, they have beaten us in public without trial. Men who are Romans and have thrown us into prison, and now they are sending us away secretly? No, indeed. But let them come themselves and bring us out. And the policemen report these words to the chief magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard they were Romans, and they came and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. The focus of that passage is on Paul's relationship to local government. The text describes and, and illustrates for us in a practical, real-life example for how we should respond to God's appointed human governments, even when they act in unjust, illegal, and openly hostile ways towards Christ's disciples and his church. Now, it's worth it to take a look back through Scripture, remind ourselves what the Bible says about God's authority over human governments. You remember a man named Daniel? He's an exiled Judahite prophet of God, a civil servant in the Babylonian and the Persian governments, and he has much to say. He writes as a godly man serving within ungodly governments. This is what he says in Daniel 2.21. He writes, It is God who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and he establishes kings. Daniel 2, verse 37, speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel says, You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. In Daniel 4, verse 17, Daniel is describing Nebuchadnezzar's imminent descent into madness, and he states his punishment, sorry, states that his punishment is so the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes, and he sets over it the lowliest of men. God establishes and removes kings, all of them. God gives kingdoms to whomever, sorry, God gives kingdoms to whomever he desires, and God sets the lowliest of men over them, because God is in authority over every human government. God's word also prescribes how we are to respond to human governments. We are number one, to be subject to them. In 1 Peter 2 verses 13 and 14, the Bible says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. We are to honor and respect them, in brackets, as difficult as that may be. Proverbs 24, verse 21, Solomon says, My son, fear the Lord and the king, and do not join or associate with those who do otherwise. We may disobey human governments only when they command actions in violation of the teaching and the commandments of Scripture. Remember Daniel 3, verses 17 18. Daniel's three godly friends, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego, unless you're from my house, then it's Rakshak and Benny, if you like veggie tales. Uh, they have been commanded to worship the, the golden image which Nebuchadnezzar had made and set up. Clearly, that's against God's word and God's will. And the threat is they will die in a blazing, fiery furnace if they refuse. And this is their response. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from out of the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. 
But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image you've set up. In Acts 4, verses 19 and 21, Peter and John answered and said to the Sanhedrin, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Submission to human governments to worship idols is against God's word, clearly, right? Submission to human governments to stop evangelizing is against God's word. But suffering for the faith, as Paul and Silas have experienced, as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were being threatened with experiencing, as the apostles before the Sanhedrin would soon experience, is not against God's will. I think that's where we a lot of us struggle. I like the idea of preaching the gospel in a lovely church like this with lovely folks like you. It's a whole lot difficult when you put threatening people in front of me. A whole lot more difficult when I know that if I open my mouth and preach the gospel, I might go to jail or far worse. That's a whole lot different, isn't it? That these men stood there. And not because there's something in them that gave them strength to do it. It was Christ who gave them the grace and the strength in that moment to do that. In Exodus chapter 1 and verse 17, sorry, in Philippians 1.29, Paul is writing to these men and women who have just experienced and seen his witness through suffering for the gospel. And he tells them, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. That's a hard one to choke down, isn't it? Suffering is a gift of God. And there's a big part of me that says, I'd like to, you know, maybe return that gift, trade it for something else. But to believe is a gift of God and to suffer for that belief is likewise a gift of God. In Exodus 1 verse 17, the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the little boys live. Disobedience to human governments is permitted by Scripture only when we are commanded to disobey God's clearly revealed will. And we have to be, brothers and sisters, absolutely sure that what the government is demanding is to do, us to do, is truly against His Word. Remember what Romans 13.1 says. Every person is to be in submission to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. And the great danger we run, if we're not careful with this, is we wind up standing in rebellion against not just the human government, but against God himself, because he put that government there. Unless, and be, be so careful, brothers and sisters, I saw far too much stuff on the internet about people saying, we have to stand up against the governments for this, that, and the other reason, all through COVID. I thought to myself, oh, careful. You better be absolutely sure that what you're being asked to do by the government is, in fact, against God's word before you reject it. Because if you do, you find yourself standing there rejecting what God has set in your life for a reason. I know I am well aware that some of you do not like what I just said. It's no mystery to me. I plead with you to listen to what Scripture says. Anyway, meanwhile, back in Acts 16, in the Philippian jail, 
Paul and Silas have been falsely accused. They're beaten and imprisoned and fastened in the stocks. They've been praying and praising God in song. The earthquake has happened. The jailer has been evangelized. He and all his household have come to faith in Jesus Christ. They've been baptized in the middle of the night. Isn't that great? They believe they got baptized. It's like two in the morning, Paul. I mean, come on, we can wait till. No, no, now's good. Let's go. And they got baptized. He and all his household have come to faith. They've all been baptized. The prisoners, including Paul and Silas, have been returned to the prison. Dawn breaks, and sometime afterwards, the police arrive with the news. Paul and Silas, you're free to go. The governing governing magistrates have unknowingly and without any due diligence broken Roman law regarding Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas, who are Hellenistic Jews, are also Roman citizens. Paul says in verse 37, they've beaten us, men, plural, who are Roman citizens. Speaking of both of them. By the way, what's the penalty for claiming Roman citizenship when you didn't have it? Anybody know? You're dead. You don't claim citizenship unless you've really got it. Because if someone checks, you're in a lot of trouble. And they claim Roman citizenship. As Roman citizens, they're subject to and protected by Roman law, which by the first century AD included three different codes. The Valerian Code established in 509, a Porcian Code established in 248, and a Julian Code established in 23 BC. Roman law guaranteed all its citizens protection in this case from a sentence of public beating and imprisonment without a full hearing. And the very least, the very least, Paul and Silas were owed an apology. So why does Paul, who hasn't used his citizenship rights thus far, now make a plea for them and insist on the magistrates coming down to the prison in great humility to escort him out? If Paul and Silas wanted to press their case and appeal for justice regarding their wrongful beating and imprisonment to the emperor, which was their right, the end result would be, at the very least, the magistrates would lose their job, possibly their freedom, and likely far, far worse. But it wasn't only the magistrates, but also the men wielding the canes, they're called lictors, beating on their backs, and their jailer. Their new brother in Christ would all face the penalties for the wrongs done to Paul and Silas. So what Paul does is he wisely and graciously uses just as much of his rights as a Roman citizen to establish publicly that he and Silas were innocent all along. Being publicly escorted from prison by the magistrates would serve to everybody who is watching, which there would have been a few, that Paul and Silas were innocent of all the charges on which they had been both beaten and imprisoned. Being publicly escorted from the prison would also serve to establish for the magistrates, for the public, for the slave girl owners, all of them would have seen that the new disciples of Christ as Roman citizens also could not be treated with complete disregard to Roman law. Their sufferings, just to kind of put all together, their sufferings were endured for the sake of the Christ and the gospel, for sake of Christ and the gospel. Their use of their rights under Roman law is for the sake of not themselves so much, but for the sake of others. 
Paul protected the jailer from prosecution under Roman law, and he protected the church from further unfair, illegal treatment. Paul and Silas knew full well their rights under Roman law. Paul and Silas knew that Christ as the king over all kings and the Lord over all lords is in authority over the magistrates, and yet he submitted to their harsh, unjust, illegal treatment. Why would Paul do that? To display his loyalty to Christ and Christ's people and for the sake of suffering with Christ. Paul knew full well that God would vindicate him one day, sooner or later, for his suffering. And when the opportune time came, he used his rights for the benefit of others. So brothers in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, listen. Remember this. God has established every single government in the world. Bible clearly teaches that. Remember this, the disobedience to governments must only be when we are being forced to do what is clearly contrary to Scripture. We must be so careful with that. Remember this, that we are first of all citizens of a heavenly country. Our allegiance to Christ, the gospel, and our fellow believers must come first, meaning that we use our rights and freedoms for the sake and the benefit of others before ourselves. Remember this. God is in authority over all the world's governments. He will right every wrong that the ungodly governments inflict upon us and all other believers. God will use our suffering of unjust, unfair, illegal treatment for the sake of the furtherance of the gospel. He promises that in Scripture. So brothers and sisters in Christ, let's be so careful to use our rights as citizens of this country for the good of others, not merely the good of ourselves. And let's be willing to put aside our personal rights and freedoms for the sake of Christ, the gospel, and other believers. I am not ignorant of the fact that's a tall order to choke down. I can always tell, not always, most time I can tell when the message I'm going to preach is something that is going to be difficult to accept and call us to something hard. Because the wheels go off the wagon <laughs> in the middle of the week with technology, with chairs, with uh, PA systems deciding when to go and when not, all that sort of thing. And I know that what I'm going to say is something that God once said, but is going to be difficult to hear. And you can bet your bottom dollar sometime this week I will get tested on this. So to summarize it so far, first of all, God is an authority over his servants, over us. By faith, we submit and we obey him. God is an authority over Satan and demons. So by faith, we fear no evil and we stand firm against the enemy. Thirdly, God is an authority over every human government. So by faith, we submit unless it clearly contradicts God's word. And by faith, we use our rights for the sake of others. And by faith... We trust our suffering will further the gospel, which brings to my last fourth point. God is in authority over his church. 
that was going to be my fourth point. But as I was working late last night and, and it just didn't seem to come together. And I stepped back from my computer and my Bible and I began to pray and ask the Lord, is this what you want? And immediately he put another thought in my mind and I, began, I pursued it out. So my fourth point is this. God is an authority over all humanity. My dear friends sitting here today, listening to everything I've said, almost all I've said so far applies only to those who are truly trusting in Christ as Savior and Lord, to those who are living in submission to God. We are God's servants living in submission to him. We have indeed been delivered from the domain of darkness out of the domain of Satan and into the kingdom of God's dear Son, for those who have trusted in Christ, we are citizens of earthly countries, but we're also citizens of a heavenly country. Our allegiance is firstly to Christ, the gospel, and our brothers and sisters. But my dear friend, if you have never turned away from loving sin and committing sin and turned to God in faith, in obedience, turned to Christ for salvation, then you are not in submission to God. You are living in rebellion against God. 1 John 3 verse 4 says that sin is lawlessness and that is rebellion against God. You are indeed still an enemy of God. We were all, all of us at one time were enemies of God. Romans 5 verses 8 to 11 describes how while we, all of us, were still enemies of God, Christ died to reconcile us to God. Nobody but nobody is born reconciled to God. We are or we were all enemies. We display our enmity, our opposition to God by refusing God's word and or our God-given conscience, which dictates when we refuse what our conscience demands, it convicts us. But when we comply, it approves us, as Romans 2, 14 through 16 explains. We were all born with a sin nature. You said, what's a sin nature? It's that inclination inside of every one of us to sin. So that when we hear a command from one in authority over us, our sin nature seizes that command and immediately strives to disobey it. Paul explains that in Romans 7, 7 to 11. I'm not reading all those texts just for sake of time, but I've given to me all in the note sheet. You can look them up. We sin because we are sinners. Romans 3.23 says we have all sinned and failed to glorify God. We're at war with God, continually refusing our conscience and acting according to the sin nature we were born with. And left to ourselves, without anybody intervening, the sin nature, left with that sin nature, we are destined to face God's wrath for our rebellion and our refusal to obey him. Paul describes it in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. The Bible says in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In John 3.16, that great text we all know so well. Let those words sink into your head again, in your heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God gave. He gave his only unique son who was born of a virgin 
truly man without a sin nature. He is truly God, having the same unchangeable divine essence as God the Father and God the Spirit, who lived in intimate communion with God the Father, who perfectly obeyed without ever sinning against God. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, sinless and perfect to pay the full penalty for all our sin, the death deserved by us. The Bible says in 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered, sorry, also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Listen. Christ suffered and died in our place for our sin. He shed his blood for you. He died for you and for me. He was buried and he was raised again for you that you might be forgiven, that I might be forgiven for all my sin against God, past, present, and future sin, that we might be reconciled to God, no longer enemies, but sons and daughters of a living God. So what does God require of us? It goes back to what we began with. To submit to him, for he is an authority over us. To believe in Jesus. To turn away from sinning. To turn towards God in faith. But my dear friend, listen carefully. I have to give you the other side of the story if you refuse. If you refuse to submit to God and to obey him, you remain separated and enemies against God. That's the word of God. And soon Christ will return in power and great glory. And he will gather all humanity together and he will judge us all. Those who have refused to submit to God will be rejected forever, for all eternity. He will say, as he promised in Matthew 7, 23, depart, go away. I never knew you. Those who have submitted and believed the gospel and believed in Christ, have turned away from sin, will be welcomed into his personal presence for all eternity, knowing indescribable joy and fellowship with God, forever free from the, the presence and the power and the pollution of sin, alive forever in submission to God, who is an authority over all his creation. So sitting here this morning, my question is to you, won't you come to Christ? Won't you submit to him? Won't you believe and know that indescribable joy of forgiveness and reconciliation to the living God? We have a great God. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray. benediction song let's pray our gracious God and heavenly father we just give thanks this morning that you are in authority over all all humanity all your servants all the church all the spiritual forces of darkness and even over human governments and father we rejoice because you are absolutely perfectly sinless and holy 
We remember those seraphim as they cried out back and forth one to the other. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Father, we give thanks that all authority lies within the hands and the grasp and the control of an absolutely holy God. Unchangeable and holy. And Father, this morning as a company of believers, we bow again in submission to you. We recognize your authority. Father, we cry out to you and give give thanks that you have defeated the devil. You have defeated sin. Father, there will come a day when every human government will give account for all the things that they have done. And the suffering that you allow your church and your people to go through, even at the hands of an ungodly government, there will be an accounting. And we give thanks for it. Father, this morning I cry out to you for those standing here this morning. Father, who have never turned to Christ. Who have never bowed their heads and their hearts in submission to you. And recognize that you are Lord and God. That they desperately need to be saved. And Father, we pray, we plead with you, O God, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would do your work in them. To help them to see the reality of their situation and their need of a savior. Oh God, we ask for your help for all of us as Christians, as believers. Lord, some of the things I said this morning are a struggle for some of us. Lord, we pray that those who wrestle with it would return again to the scriptures to see what the Bible says. Father, if we need to adjust our ways and our views, and Lord, we pray for grace and wisdom and discernment to do just that. Lord, we ask you for your blessing. We give thanks again, O God, for a time of worship before you. And we do so in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.